Hello, listeners. This is Dave McGuire, co-host of Nerds on Film. If you're looking for something that's funny, something that may have dirty words, something that may tickle your funny bone, then my friends, I have the podcast for you. Please head on over to nerdonomy.com and check out Nerds on Film. Where else can you check it out? You may say, well, we're on iTunes as well. You can go there and subscribe to us. Or you can go to Stitcher Radio. We're in three different places. Three different places to get funny. Now, where else can you say you can find that? Nerds on Film. Thank you very much. Mic check. Check um, one. Check one. So, we're ready to do this? Yeah. I've been preparing all week. I am ready for these sniveling nights. What are you talking about? Podcast. What we're no, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I know. Topic. What we're doing this week. Sniveling nights? Yes. Civil rights, not <sighs> sniveling nights. You said sniveling nights. No, I said civil rights. No, you said sniveling nights. You had a cold that week. <clears throat> I have done so much research on it. What am I supposed to do with the life of William Bedford III? Sir William Bedford III. Save it for next week. All right. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. You know, Eric, I think we've said it before, but I'm very proud that we live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I am too. I'm very proud that we live in, in the country that we do. Yeah, we do. I'm, of course, I am proud to be an American, even though we are an imperfect country. Well, no one's perfect. No. The reason why I'm proud of being in this area, not just because, of course, that we are in America, but I think we are in the most ethnically diverse part of the country. Next to maybe New York City, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Bay Area is really just, it's this great mixing pot, and it's just full of all different cultures from every different area of the Bay, and it's recognized, really, around the world. Uh, it's recognized through music, through film, through the writing of, of lots of different literature, and it's recognized right here at home. You know, everyone is this big, beautiful mixing pot. We all kind of come together. I agree. Even though I I am a Euromutt, you know. <laughs> As am I. Yeah. Uh, I'm grateful that I have that mixed heritage. But I'm also grateful that we're living in the time we're living in now. Because yeah. 50, 60 years ago, even the Bay Area, as diverse as it would have been, would not have been as tolerant as we are now. By no means. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because my wife, she oftentimes says when we're watching, you know, movies from around that era in like the 20s and 30s and what have you, she says, you know, I would have loved to live in that time. Things just seemed so much simpler back then. But then I like to remind her, well, at that time, it wouldn't have been legal for us to get married. You know, considering yeah. the fact that my wife yeah. is from Mexico, <laughs> and I am not, and interracial marriage has really only been tolerated since and around the end of the 1940s and early 1950s. Really more the 1960s is when it really started to take place, you know? Yeah, but there were times yeah. be- even before that when it was outlawed. Sure. You couldn't do it legally. Yeah, absolutely. It took a Supreme Court ruling, I believe, to, to turn make that around. interracial marriage fully legal, exactly, yeah. which is a big proponent of the civil rights movement. You know? Not the Sniveling Knights movement. No, the Sniveling Knights movement was about a bunch of rude members of the British peerage who uh, rode through England and just gave raspberries to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> not the bit, not not the fruit, the tongue sticking out. Yeah. yeah. If our uh, English listeners could please confirm this, uh, you can reach us at our. It's emails. very very early on. We're talking like the 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 early twelfth century. Oh, okay, very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So don't bother then. One of the well, there's no record of it in British history. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No. <laughs> yeah, no sniveling nights, I'm afraid. Um, <clears throat> no, but the very real topic of civil rights, rather. Yeah. And the fact that when this episode will go live will be on a very important day that's celebrated here in America. And one that is perhaps not celebrated in other countries, perhaps, but is recognized around the world. Well, actually, let me launch into that because we're talking, of course, about Martin Luther King Day. Of course, yeah. yeah it is, of course an American holiday because we recognize our heritage and the, the tremendous achievements of the movement that King helped lead. But there are other countries who recognize that significance too. Not necessarily the full country, but there are cities really? in other countries that recognize it. I, I had no idea. First thing I want to talk about is Toronto, Canada. Toronto. See, again, Toronto. the Canadians, very polite. Indeed. They have officially recognized it. It's not a paid holiday, of course, and all government services remain open, but it's recognized as a, as a day on their calendar. And then... uh Kind of odd, but um, Hiroshima. Hiroshima in, in Japan. Well, I guess if you think it. about it, it's really not that odd. Yeah. Considering I mean, what we remember Hiroshima for within the 20th century, which of course is the 
the explosion of Hiroshima and the that, atom bomb that you know led to the end of the Second World War and the and the death of hundreds of thousands of people, and the debate over whether or not these horrible weapons should or would ever be used again, it does kind of make sense because it does really deal with the with a matter of life and death and civil liberties. It's a very interesting holiday. Um, other than, of course, talking about the, the contributions that Martin Luther King made, and we'll get, definitely get into those. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, I believe, took place in 1964. Yes. Yeah. And the civil rights movement, we really argue, had its start all the way back in the late 40s, actually. And that's really the, the modern civil rights movement. I mean, if you, if you really want to dial it back further, we could talk about the end of the Civil War, and, Reconstruction. Yeah, and the very yeah. concept and idea of freeing slaves and then giving them rights. And while the 14th Amendment was passed, there were many who were okay with the government's decision to go ahead and free slaves, but they were not okay with giving these people the real rights to be represented. Well, and as such, they became second-class citizens up until... Yeah, well, we have, know, have to movements. remember, too, is at this time there was a very significant form of racism that was going on in this country. And now we're just talking about hatred, because that's really the more bigotry-based racism that we see today. This is a full-on sense of ignorance yeah. that the black community, there was a genuine belief that they were not capable of being able to, to handle themselves as a people. And uh, that's that was on the positive side. The, the negative side was thinking that these people were ape-like, and they, they were derived from a, a step below white humans, which is based off of completely unfounded race science that, that, you know, unfortunately was even used by Hitler. Yeah, pseudoscience. And, yeah. and the reality of it all, once genetics came out, the truth is every human being on this planet is this genetically the same. We literally have skin deep differences yeah. uh, that have developed after, you know, thousands and thousands of years of evolution in different areas of yeah. the world or different environments. I believe genetically every human being is 98% identical. Um, and in fact, there are more genes that go into your height uh, sorry, more alleles in your genetic code that go to your height than they do your, your skin color. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how much of a social construct that race is, because we've pretty much irrefutably destroyed that there's a biological difference between different well, races. Well, there really is no race. I mean, there's the human race. Right. There's our species. Right. But when you really break it down, even the word race is highly, highly outdated. Right. Uh, and therefore, technically, the word racism in of itself is also outdated. But yeah. it has stuck around because it is associated with with a behavior. Yeah, what you're really talking about is ethnocentrism. Yeah, you know that you're which is way too long for most people to say. So right, they stick with a, a shortened version. <clears throat> right, exactly. Maybe ethnomania. I don't know. We'll, 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 we're working on that. You know, yeah, <clears throat> semantics. Quite literally. Exactly. Quite exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when we're talking about the switch into the 20th century, there were a lot of things going on. There's also step backwards too, because with Reconstruction ending in the late 1860s. You know, we're talking about lots of sly pieces of legislation that were put into place that prevented blacks from being able to, to execute their rights as citizens. You know, poll taxes. Uh, of course, the big one was the Supreme Court, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson that took place in 18, I believe, 97. We'll have to double check that. have to double check that, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry, 1896, my apologies. Uh, and that was the now infamous separate but equal rules, <laughs> which is what... Legalized. Nothing what it, what it was. It was certainly separate, but it was certainly not equal. Not at all. And this is what legalized and affirmed the legality of segregation in yeah. all forms. Yeah. But uh, it wasn't really until 1948, right, that we're talking about the beginnings of that starting to change. Yeah, to break down those those barriers and to make real effort towards equal representation in this country for everybody. Well, actually, really, when you think about it, not so much. I mean, yes, that's when we're starting to see it politically, but culturally, you see signs of it as early back, I'd say, as the early 20th century. Do you know who the highest paid member of uh, Ziegfeld's Follies were? No. no. So do you know who Ziegfeld... I don't know. Okay, so no. Florenz Ziegfeld was one of the biggest Broadway producers of the early era. One of his biggest pieces he did is he had the Follies. It was this big showcase where you have the no, the showgirls with the big peacock hats. Sure, yeah, like you see in Vegas these days. Was Ziegfeld. That okay. was the guy who coined that. He wanted these big spectacles, right? And then he had you know these very loose musical reviews that he would do. The, his most highest paid member of his group was Burt Williams, and Burt Williams was an African-American comedian. Wow. Now, he performed in blackface, unfortunately, because that's the only way people would accept him. But there you have it. There's, a, there's an old story that he went to a bar after the show, and he ordered a drink. And the bartender, who was a racist, said, that'll be $1,000. So he puts out $5,000 on the table and said, I'll take five. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, this is $5,000 in the 1920s we're talking oh about. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
an exorbitant amount of money. And Ziegfeld was not a racist. Ziegfeld, no, every, there were people in the cast who protested um, to this. There's a great PBS series on, on early Broadway that talks about this. And, you know, he said, look, if you, he called all their bluffs, said, look, if you have a problem with it, there's a door. He's, he's staying. I'm not going to say that there weren't progressive, forward-thinking people in America. Uh, certainly there were. But when it really came to a head, you know, really came to this, this boiling point, and now it was make or break. All right, now we're going to really take this next step, yeah. or we're going to keep living in this form of yeah. compliance and accept everything going on around us. Well, now it's time to step up and, and take action. Absolutely. And another cultural element where we can talk about this was actually the biggest show that Ziegfeld produced. Do you know what it is? Again, I do not. Showboat. I don't even know what showboat is. I'm sorry. You're you're the you're okay, the, so the this theater is guy. More, I'm clearly the the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the theater expert here. Um, I'm not I'm not really not an expert, guys. I think that's more Kyla Prince's uh, territory. <laughs> yeah, you're as, close as, as, from, as far as the nerds are concerned, you, you're what we have. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what we have, like you. Yeah, you're good enough for now. Thanks, Eric. Uh, <laughs> showboat was big. It was 1927, and the whole thing talks about interracial marriage. And, really? Uh, as it was by its uh, legal term, which is, I think, miscegeny, what yeah. it was called. Mm-hmm. It was produced in 1927, and is considered uh, by many theater historians to be the bridge musical. Wow. I mean, because prior to that, most musicals were these very loose stories that weren't major. As in, the plot took a backseat to the spectacle of, the, of performing. Sure. Uh, the bridge musical took it from the theater world from being about musical reviews to wanting to tell compelling stories. Well, that's fascinating. And I guess if you really think about it, William Shakespeare was actually kind of the first to do that, wasn't he? You're thinking about Othello? Yeah. In a way, yeah. Yeah. So there were, there's, history has always shown these progressive people. But you're right. As far as actually like addressing racial inequality, I think the first time we really start to see that is with Harry Truman. Absolutely. And of course, you're, you're talking about in 1948 uh, with Executive Order 9981, mm-hmm. which and I'll, I'll say it in the terminology of the actual. Sure, go ahead. It is hereby declared to be the policy of the president that there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. And it was great that it went beyond just yeah, race. Because you know, we're talking about a time where there was still a great amount of xenophobia as well. Of course. And, yeah. you know, we're talking about the integration of other cultural groups, many of which were post-World War II, now finding a new home and refuge in the United States, many of which who joined up in service to defend their country against Japan and against Germany. And it, they didn't care what the color of their skin was. They didn't care what their religious beliefs were. They simply wanted to sign up and defend the country that they loved, a country that at the time was overwhelmingly perhaps against their equality, even facing that kind of racial discrimination, they still chose to do what they did, and they did it very well. Uh, and there were many instances of those particular regimens that were made up of those individual races because of the segregation laws, who went on and did incredible things. Yeah, I believe uh, there was a Japanese infantry during World War II that actually won the most, I think, not, not like they won the most battles like it's a competition, but they were one of the most decorated in the war, now that I think about it. And of course, the Tuskegee Airmen, and their, their legendary status uh, within the United States Air Force. And again, going back to the times of the Civil War, the very first time that we ever had people other than you know white people in, in uniform and, and fighting and recognized were the black regiments that were signed up and fighting against slavery. I just I immediately think of the movie Glory when you think of that. It's a from, tremendous movie out there um, by Edward Zwick. If you haven't, if anyone out there hasn't seen it, yeah. And of course, their colonel in command. You know, and this is all a true story. Yeah, uh, their colonel in command was put in charge of leading this black regiment and died in the service of, of mm-hmm. his country, unifying his country There's a together. monument to him in Boston, because that's where he was from. Yeah, yeah. and uh, He died with his soldiers. He did. And, and there was uh, the Confederates, when they found his body among his soldiers, they buried them all in a mass grave. They didn't send their bodies back or leave them on the field to be recovered and, and buried with respect. They dug a mass grave and they put them in it. And they did it as an insult to him. In a way, though, it was more dignifying to him because he was buried with his men. Far more. In fact, those were the exact same words that his father yeah. gave when, when you know, the United States essentially apologized for not being able to retrieve his remains. He said, it doesn't matter. He died believing what he believed in, and he's with the people that he wanted to be with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's those stories that have resonated and have, have lasted the test of time because they, they teach us a really powerful lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's jump forward a little bit to 1954 because I do want to talk about Brown versus Board of Education, right? Which reversed Plessy versus Ferguson, right? Which yeah. 
essentially segregated all education in the United States and forced those who are not white to receive whatever they could. Scraps, essentially. Substandard education facilities and materials and essentially be forgotten about and not cared about. Uh, and this gave an opportunity now for equal representation within schools and as such an equal opportunity to really succeed and, and thrive in life. Mm-hmm. And what better example than this than, of course, the Little Rock Nine. Also a good point to mention, too, is the man who was arguing uh, as the defender was Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall, Marshall. Yeah. who would oh, go on well, to become... Oh, we just said it at the same time. Oh, we did. For those of you who are listening at the, <laughs> the home game, that's five points. <laughs> well, Thurgood Marshall's important because... 10, 15 years later, he would become the first African-American... Supreme Court Justice, yeah. Supreme Court Justice, exactly. Absolutely incredible, yeah. Big deal. But yes, definitely the Little Rock Nine needs to be mentioned. That actually happens a little later on. That happens a a couple years later. It really showed that we could push those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And even though there was a lot of threatening talk, even though there was real examples of people coming out in protest and horrible slurs being thrown around and and threats of civil war type secede from the nation type talk going on as a result of these children being brought into school. Even with all of that, these kids who were just kids, you know, I'm not exactly sure how young the youngest were middle school and high school. Yeah. So the youngest Hmm. was probably what, 10 or 11 years old or so to, to be able to stand up to that is incredible. Yeah, and they had to have the National Guard sent in to uh, escort them. And I'm not saying that it wasn't a very tense situation. Of course it was. But the fact that we as a country survived, whereas everyone had assumed the worst, who thought this was going to evolve into something that would tear us apart and become another civil war, it didn't happen. Of course it wasn't going to happen. But the country needed to see that. And these young and brave and courageous, not just the children, but of course also the school board and the teachers who are willing to to step up and, and put their name out there, and the National Guardsmen who are willing to defend them, you know, they were all a significant part of this. And that <clears throat> showed, yes, if we really stick to our guns, we can overcome yeah. adversity. But something else bigger happened before in 1955. You know, two big things happened. Well, of course. The big one, of course, is Rosa Parks. But before yeah. we talk about that, we have to talk about Emmett Till. Right. It's really sad. He was a he was a northerner. He was a Chicagoan visiting, and he whistled at a white woman. You know. Yeah. And they wouldn't have it. They kidnapped him, and they they beat him, they shot him, and they you know discarded him like he was trash. They found him in the river. Yeah. Pretty much. And correct me if I'm wrong. The the movie Mississippi Burning is based off of the events surrounding this. Mm-hmm. Indeed, and, Gene Hackman, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's funny that we, we keep bringing up movies. I mean, obviously, yes, we have the film podcast, so movies are always well, kind of on our mind. There's been a lot of movies that have been told about this time in history, and yeah. it's, they're really important, because this is a part of history we don't want to forget. Exactly. At all. It's, it's all about us teaching and passing on those stories that have a real meaning behind them. And right. Even through this horrible, tragic death, yeah. to know that so many people have become educated because right. of it. If I was the person who was in that situation and I had ended up being killed, I, I think I could rest peacefully just knowing from all the people who had learned from what had happened. Right. Well, there's, I mean, I think it's important that we mention these films because they do tell a very interesting story, and they're not all done exactly the same way. You get to see these different takes. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to them as we go along with the timeline because I can reference a few of them. Yeah, quite a few. But, of course, let's talk about Rosa Parks. You know, here's someone who, by all accounts, if you had gotten on the bus and just thought you could push her around, you probably thought, no, it'd be no problem at all. Well, she was but, also tired too she had just had a long shift she was a seamstress by her trade and yeah she probably just did it out of fallen exasperation yeah well after having put up with this for so long as well just saying you know what no i'm not gonna do that i'm not gonna get up and move i'm tired and i deserve the right to to sit here along with everybody else and it led really to this truly polarizing conversation particularly within the black community about we can boycott we can protest and we can do it in a completely and totally nonviolent way, and it's going to have a reaction that will hurt people way more than they're thinking it will. And that's exactly what happened out of a result of that was the Montgomery bus boycott that, uh, that occurred. And the other boycotts that would be born out of that, which mm-hmm. would take a huge economic knife and stab that into many of the places in the South where these boycotts yeah. were happening. Well, we have to mention, of course, who was the man who led that boycott. Of right? course, that was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Right, who at this time was a just a reverend in Montgomery, Alabama, and he had just been elected the president of a, of a organization of churches in the area, you know? And this is a man who, from early on in his ministry, admired Mahatma Gandhi. He understood the importance of nonviolent civil disobedience. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's true power. You know, to be a person where you are being accused of being violent, you and your 
your people were being accused yeah. of being violent all the time. And what does he do? He says, no, we're not going to give them any fuel for their fire. We already know it's completely false. Yeah. Let's go above and beyond to show the world exactly how wrong they are. And yeah. what it became known as civil disobedience. It's, it's a term for the time, right? Really what it is is peaceful protest. Uh, and that's what it really is. It's not so much this disobedience. It's the fact that they're protesting and showing their rights and doing it in a, in a peaceful fashion. I was just looking up um, IMDb here because I wanted to mention there's a great movie called Boycott that was made in 2004 for HBO that's got Jeffrey Wright and as the role of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I just was curious, like, how many actors have played Martin Luther King on film? And I have on the list here 34 wow. actors have already played Martin Luther King. And considering that this is only 60 years ago, that's pretty tremendous. Yeah. That that's happened, that he's probably one of the most played people in recent history. You know, I imagine like next to like JFK or one of the more recent presidents. Fascinating. It really is. Yeah. yeah. But you know, the story of the civil rights movement continues well beyond there because we jump forward, we see some, you know, all these, these definite occurrences taking place in the early 60s. But 1963 is a, is a big point in time because a couple of things happened. First of all, MLK was arrested. Yeah. Yeah. And he wrote a letter, a very important letter to his followers from Birmingham jail. In fact, it's called The Letter from Birmingham Jail. Pretty pretty straightforward. And this is also when we start seeing uh, the use of force against protesters, too. Bull Connor and his dogs and the ho- like fire hoses being used. There's yeah. footage and, and photos of this you can find online. It's pretty uh, amazing, uh, the, you know, the bravery that these people stood up to. And, you know, not to mention that in the 1960s compared to a, in the 1940s, millions of people own televisions in America and we're now seeing a lot of these images broadcasted on their nightly news right. news agencies that were not afraid to show these images and what it did is continue to polarize the movement and get people out but get people out in these large peaceful protests yeah like you have that summer of the same year with the marches starting on Washington now yeah and this is another big one too um in Jackson Mississippi Medgar Evers uh, he was a secretary for the NAACP, was murdered right in front of his home. He was literally walking between his car and his house when he was shot dead. Yeah. Died on the, on the front lawn of his house. Pretty and horrifying. Of course that it, you know. His wife and his daughters came out and uh, found him dying and horrifying. Um, the man who, who shot him, Byron De La Beckwith, was uh, originally acquitted, but it took him like 30 years to, to finally be, yeah. be convicted for murdering him. Did, yeah. Great movie that talks about this, of course, is The Ghosts of Mississippi. It's got... Yeah. Uh, Alec Baldwin, James Woods, Whoopi Goldberg, like tr- some tremendous actors in it. And then, of course, we have we cannot pass 1963 without mentioning the March on Washington. No, we, like literally the I Have a Dream speech yeah. that took place. 200,000 people out in peaceful protest. Absolutely. To to hear Martin Luther King, to, to stand around him and, and be inspired by him. A, a speech that has continued to inspire millions around the world And to if you want day. to talk about a guy who understands rhetoric and then understands the power of performativity. Yeah. The man stands in front of the Lincoln Memorial with 200,000 people looking at him. And he gives a speech that speaks to not just black people, not just to white people, to everybody. He even says, I dream of a day where we all, black or white, Jew or Muslim, Protestant or Catholic, living with each other side by side. Yeah. You know? And what he was doing is he was addressing the world, and he was addressing the world's problems that were going on at that time. And that many of which those problems are still continuing to this day to, thankfully, in some cases, a lesser degree. But, you know, the fact that that speech continues to still have power and have a message for people to continue fighting for what is right shows to me that, honestly, I think he was the exact opposite of Hitler. If you went to the Bizarro universe, (laughs) that's what you would have. Here's a person who can captivate millions, but captivates them with a speech of peace and equality. But he's also saying a very powerful message, too. When he says the last words of that speech, free at last, free at last, what he's really saying is we are are all slaves to our own ignorance. We are all slaves to our own prejudices that we have against other people. And he's talking about a time where we will free ourselves from that, you know? Yeah. By judging people by who they really are. Yeah. Gives you goosebumps just thinking about it. It does indeed. It really does. And it's a message that needs to be repeated ad infinitum, you know? That message is never going to stop being relevant. Because there are always people will always be imperfect. We will always have moments where we want to judge somebody based off of stereotypes. Yeah, you know, we need to rise above that. Now, '64 was a very significant year as well, and you know they keep just kind of snowballing on top of each other. They keep keep becoming more and more progressively significant. I'm of course, this is talking because, about yeah, because this is the work that 
Johnson started the work that finished the work that Kennedy started. Correct. Yeah. Especially the Twenty Fourth Amendment, yeah. uh, which abolished the poll tax, which finally gave African Americans uh, a sense of security and allowed them to go and vote and and have equal representation in the country yeah. that they had lived in for so many years. And this was a big deal too, because the Democratic Party used this as a method to register a lot of black voters. Yeah. Too, since it was their first opportunity to to really register without having to pay an exorbitant amount of money. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so this actually changed the political landscape quite a bit. You know, now getting the black vote was a significant part of winning an election, you know, yeah. after this date. Not that it wasn't before, but it's even more so now. And I remember when we were talking about the, the, the coverage of our most recent election, they talked about that's how Obama won re-election was due to a lot of the fact that he was able to carry women voters, he was able to carry African-American voters, uh, Latino voters as well. Because of this, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, as a reason why that's part of our political landscape. But more so, even more so, I should say, was President Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And, I mean, this was the legislation that, since the end of the Civil War, had been the biggest push to give African Americans, and anyone, not just African Americans, but everyone in the country, the, the rights that were due to them. Yeah. And to be fair, these were really just reaffirming what the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were trying to do in the first place. Yeah. You know? Um, but this is the actual verbiage that it took to get it done. Whereas everything yeah. else had been relatively vague and unfortunately open to such interpretation that people could pussyfoot around the law all they wanted. In this case, it made it very, very clear as to what was going to happen. Exactly. We made it a, a federal offense. To discriminate. To discriminate, exactly. Yeah. And this is also around the time where we start seeing the term affirmative action taking affirmative action to hire minorities, more or less, though, within the government, though, and that took on another form when it came to job opportunities in private sector and in education, of course, as well. I do want to mention that 1965 is a big deal because just like we have Martin Luther King, we also have Malcolm X. We do. Was, he was, unfortunately, kind of the inverse. Uh, he was also a civil rights leader, but was more on the uh, side of using force if necessary. Certainly a much more controversial figure. Definitely. Definitely a champion for, for rights, but at all cost. Yeah. Whereas King's message was one of integration and one of peace and tolerance and education, Malcolm X focused more as, as an oppressed people. Yeah. And what oppressed people often have to do to overcome that is to, is to take up arms. Yeah. What was interesting is that he wasn't assassinated by by white people. He was assassinated by members of uh, the black Muslim faith, which is an extremist group that he was representing because he had actually gone to Mecca as a Muslim and and now favored a more orthodox form of, of Islam. Right, and also yeah. the true teaching of Islam, which was peaceful. He saw Muslims who were black and Muslims who were brown and Muslims who were white. Yeah, it was, really, it was really an eye-opener and it was what ended up getting him killed, which is sad. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. We get to 1968. Which was a year... That this world will never forget. It was a tough year for the civil rights movement because on April fourth, you know Martin Luther King was was assassinated. He was gunned down. Yeah, and I think that's an important term that we use the word assassinated because yeah. he was such a big figure at this point that that's the only word you can really think of. You know, I can only imagine the heartbreak and the pain that the people accompanying him must have felt because you know he wasn't at home. He, he got killed in, outside of the hotel that he was staying in. They were out there doing what they had done so well, which was spread that word of peace and tolerance. Yeah. And, and you know, to, to be on that, that mission of peace. Yeah. And it was an even tougher year because Robert F. Kennedy, who was viewed by many Democrats and by many of the African-American community as uh, a champion of civil rights and who would have become president if what had happened hadn't happened. On June 6th, after winning the California primary, he was um, murdered. You know, yeah. He was also assassinated at... at, at uh, Ironically, also at a hotel. At a hotel, room. Yeah. yeah. But he was in the banquet room. I honestly believe if both of those men had lived, they both could very well have lived to become president. RFK was kind of a shoo-in, right? He had yeah. his brother. He, he was, was already in politics. At one point. Yeah. yeah. And even though King never declared his intention to ever be in politics, I could see an America, probably in the late 70s and early 80s, perhaps ready to make that move. I think it's possible that Martin Luther King, if he had so chosen could have been elected as America's first black president. If he had become the first black president, Barack Obama's election in 2008 would have been even more true to King's speech. Yeah. Where the significance is less about him becoming the first African-American president, but rather being the first president who... Who preceded the first African-American president. Or, exactly. Or who had really shown the realization of that dream. Right. And now, because, however, 
we've taken that step as a country. We can also ask, well, when is there going to be the first woman president? Right. You know, when are we going to see a president? first non-Christian president. uh, first non-Christian president, yeah. And these are all things that I believe many other countries, particularly in Europe, have already accomplished. Yeah. I think it's well overdue. And again, I'm not really, this is not an opinion show. You know, this is, we're we're stating the facts, we're stating the history. Sure. I'm just saying it for what it is. I really think that it's important. I think it's going to happen. Yeah. And it's going to be a continued realization of, of that dream. going to happen sooner than later. I mean, if you look at the fact that Britain has already had a female prime minister. France has had a female president. Now, I believe the current president is is uh, is a woman. We'll have to double check that. No, it's no, not. Cur- no, no, she cur- was. She was in the the campaign for it. Right, but the she lost. Oh, there's, okay. there's a man who's president now. Sean, take that out. Um, Finland, <laughs> Finland, Germany, <laughs> Germany, of course. I current chancellor of Germany is, right. is as a woman. Um, I believe in South Korea. Yeah, that was that was a big that one. was very recent, was, yeah. if I'm not uh, mistaken. So obviously, America's Still catching up to do in the with the ladies. Let's do this. Come on. Yeah. Let's have a woman president. Exactly. So sixty eight though. First and foremost, I want to acknowledge again all of the importance of King's work. And I think that he would have been disappointed if in our show we hadn't mentioned beyond the scope of what his work was. And I'm not just talking about the civil rights movement in America. I'm talking about the ripple effects that it had around the world. Because if you look at what was done in America, it was like dropping a boulder into a lake. You know, I'm not just talking about a little stone. I'm talking about waves washing up on the shores of every single beach on that lake. And that's exactly what happened. In 1968, even though it was a tragic year, was this boiling point for civil rights movements around the world. And so I want to branch out from here. Okay. And I want to follow those ripples as they end up on those shores. And I want to talk a little bit about the other movements that were going on. One, again, closer to home. So starting closer to, the, to that drop of the boulders, the Chicano movement in America. And being that my children are Chicanas, you know, I feel like I have a little bit more of a connection with this than the most people do. And my wife, who is originally from Mexico, you know, came to the United States in a very different time. If she had come in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, she would have been viewed with much of the same racial prejudice and discrimination as, you know, African Americans were at that time in the, in the country. And it is something that, again, has been approached in movies, and we've talked about it, and there's literature, and there's a lot of you know, museums that are dedicated to it. But it's almost something that kind of isn't as talked about as much as I, as I wish it was. Mm-hmm. Because it was very important, especially for Californians, because being that you know, we're both from California, we see Mexican culture all around us, and Latino culture in general, because we have so many different ethnic groups that, uh, that are here in the Bay Area, like we've talked about, and all throughout California. And you have a few of those members of that movement, again, in the 1960s, who were really, again, polarized by Martin Luther King and his contemporaries and everything that they were doing, and decided to stand up and speak for their rights. And this was felt no more stronger than in L.A. County, where you had a very, very large Latino population, and you had a lot of really horrible discrimination, particularly by the police. And there were a lot of organized movements led by students to stand up and say, we oppose you but we will not raise fists to you. You know, we are going to do this peacefully. And it was really in the colleges around California that a lot of this started to gain its momentum and its power. And it's interesting, though, because then it shifted, and it became less about civil rights of Americans and then more about the rights of the undocumented workers. And this is still a debate that is going on very heatedly right now. Yeah, well, for the record, the civil rights movement is still continuing. Oh, yeah, it's continuing and it's evolving all the time. It is. But when we talk about the transition points and now different topics that we're talking about and different different matters that we're addressing. As we're getting toward the late 60s and early 70s, we're starting to see civil rights take place across the world. But also in America, we're still seeing the shift to civil rights now focus more toward equality for women, you know? Well, for equality also for those who who have a sexual preference that is uh, different than their gender. Of course, right. We're we're dealing with that now in our country. So um, there's a lot going on still. Definitely. And we also start to see offshoots of, well, really, not, this isn't an offshoot, but the Black Panther Party, too. You know, a, a, more, right. a more aggressive approach to civil rights um, in the way that they, they were unfortunately viewed as a terrorist group, a domestic terrorist group, but they really weren't. They were actually doing more <laughs> for, for the black community than yeah. more peaceful well, movements were in the The Bay big area. difference was, I think the Black Panthers really were about promoting something more along the lines of fighting your own battles and not necessarily relying on others to do work for you, mm-hmm. you know, to, to represent yourselves and be strong and be powerful about it. 
which was oftentimes misconstrued as being yeah. about violence. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the imagery that was out there, however, yeah. you did have people who were banishing weapons and what yeah. have you. So there, there was an obvious confusion, but what it really evolved into and became yeah. was really different, was all about empowerment, including within the Chicano movement. Right. So right here in San Jose, California, the birthplace uh, of the Chicano movement and more, well, I shouldn't say the birthplace of the Chicano movement, but more the birthplace of the Brown Berets, which were kind of the contemporaries of the Black Panthers, but for the Chicano movement. So San Jose State uh, is really where that was founded. Yeah. Uh, and then it moved and changed and affiliated its headquarters in Oakland. But if you go to San Jose State today, I mean, there's still a remembrance of this. There's still acknowledgement of it. And of also of the Black Panther movement. And I think that we're talking a little bit about the uh, 1968 Summer Olympics. Yeah, because uh, the two gold medalists for, was it, I can't remember which, what the sport it was. It was in track and field. Track and field. It was, I was going to say track and field. Um, big deal because they put on these gloves and they, they gave the black power symbol, which is the fist up in the air. Yeah. and Very it, controversial. Absolutely. And not only did they do it, but the bronze medalist, uh, Peter Norman, who was an Australian, wore a symbol uh, representing the organization that they belonged to that was actually set up just prior to the 68 Summer Olympics, uh, which was the, the Olympic Organization for Human Rights. And they stated many years later that when they made that salute, and the people we're talking about are, are uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, that it wasn't as much for black power as it was for just human rights in general. They were representing an organization, but they were representing yeah. a cause. But it was more a big deal because they had their, their medals revoked. They did. Yeah. Yeah. And many of them received death threats upon returning home yeah. and were treated very poorly, as was Peter Norman when he returned to Australia, uh, to the point where, you know, they're now recognized for their achievements, but it took many, many years sure. to recognize yeah. that bravery. And there is a statue dedicated, right, not too it's far away from us, few, campus. few miles away from us right now. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Um, tremendously cool looking. It's a mosaic-like uh, structure that sits in the quad right across from uh, Clark Hall, not too far behind the iconic bell tower or uh, clock tower that is the center of the campus. Yeah. And if you go to Australia, there's a painting, a mural that was painted on the side of a, a gentleman's house, and it faces one of the main rail lines on there that people see. And there's actually been movements to protect that house now to make sure that it's a national monument and that it stays there because yeah. of the importance of the mural. You know, you, you're mentioning San Jose State, and I should just kind of be out with it. I am a student at San Jose State University. I'm a senior there. Um, it's taken me a long time to finish college. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're talking about this, too, and I can't believe I didn't mention that the Martin Luther King Public Library oh, yeah. is on It's the part of the campus, yeah. It's part of the campus. But it's unique, too, in that it's the world's first public library and university library that's merged together. You can get the same collection of books, whether you're a student or just a registered with the library. And how appropriate that it's named the Martin Luther King Library, then. Exactly, in a in this ethnically diverse part A merger of that brings the public together. I love it. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. Uh, I digress, though. You wanted to move on to how this really moved the world movements well, in it uh, did. a different direction. And just before the Summer Games started, on October 2nd, 1968, occurred in Mexico uh, a pivotal point in the civil rights movement that was going on in that country. And that is the Tatalico Massacre. And I'm almost certainly saying this wrong. <laughs> So I apologize out for anyone out there who, who knows the proper way of saying this. But it was really a shocking and, and horrible occurrence. One that actually has a very close connection to a member of my family. So in 1968, my wife's family, who were from Mexico City, her aunt and her uncle, who are just a little bit older than my mother-in-law, were going to university. And in Mexico, the way it works is oftentimes the last few years of high school are directly tied in to the university that you want to go to. And so the two universities that were being represented by the students who were part of this protest and movement that would end up becoming this massacre is the uh, school that uh, my in-laws were going to. Hmm. And they were both in high school. They were both pretty close to transitioning to college. And so when the word came that more and more students were gathering together in protest... And I should mention what they were protesting. They were mentioning they were protesting the millions of dollars that were being spent on the Olympics and not being spent on the farmers, the poor farmers in Mexico, and the children and the students who were going to school. Uh, there was also a lot of liberties and rights being taken away from students and the way that universities 
were organizing themselves and, and doing what they did best. A lot of that was being mandated and controlled by the government. So there was really this, this outpour of students all coming together to protest this. And on the eve of the massacre, my in-laws were getting ready to go. They were getting dressed and ready to head out there and, and join the crowds when my grandfather-in-law came home. He was working as a bodyguard for a very high-up person in the government. Uh, I won't mention who that person was. But he had heard the rumors and heard the scuttlebutt of what the military had planned for these students. And he forbid them to leave the home. And they came very close to disobeying their father, but they knew by the seriousness of his voice and the way that he looked at them that he wasn't just being a father. He was trying to protect their lives. And what would happen later would just be tragic. The students were protesting, the military was called in, and there was a very particular branch of the military that was called in. They were kind of like special forces, if you will. And it was their job in plain clothes, so they wouldn't be distinguished from the rest of the students, to essentially incite the violence. They would be the ones to give them the reason to start shooting. And there's a lot of debate about this, and the the government of Mexico today still contends that it was in fact the students who began the violence within the protest. And the truth is, no one will ever really know for sure. But the fact that these plainclothes special ops forces were there, varnishing weapons and, and started shooting, it's pretty obvious, in my opinion, what happened anyhow. And this led to this, this terrible massacre that occurred, or hundreds of students were killed. Uh, there's estimates of it around three or 400 people were murdered that night. And not just students, but also bystanders who had joined in, or who were simply nearby, because uh, there were apartment complexes all surrounding the square where the massacre occurred. And there are reports of the military coming in, trying to track down students who had run away, and then killing whole families, just because they were in any kind of association with that student, even if it was just for a few seconds that they run by their, their home. Really, this horrible, horrible scar and it has been recognized as that turning point in Mexico because it was impossible for that media to be suppressed and as such it became this this rally this cry to start things changing and it has slowly even though there is still a lot of corruption in the Mexican government there have been a lot of movements that have been made in the right direction uh, and a lot of it is owed to those students who who really lost their lives that night uh, on the 50th anniversary of the massacre, over 40,000 people marched in remembrance of the people who had been killed that night. Even years later, it's still very important and in the minds of many, including my in-laws, who were almost victims themselves, possibly. I had no idea. Not a lot of people do. And it's, uh, it's a shame, because it's, uh, it's an important, important turning point in uh, civil rights in Mexico and civil rights in the world. Well, there was a lot else going on <laughs> around yeah. the world. Well, we should also talk about South Africa oh, at this point, Absolutely. Too. I mean, how can we not? And I feel like a lot of people in America don't really, at least from our generation, don't really understand what was going on. Because when I was growing up, Nelson Mandela was president. Right. That was a whole totally different Juxt- South that's Africa. That's a huge juxtaposition from what it was like before. Where it was like no more than 10 years before, no more than five years before he became president. The way the country had changed so abruptly uh, is pretty incredible. And I think it's important that we just kind of, for our listeners who don't know a lot about South African history, to just give a kind of a quick outline of what South Africa and the Partied is all about. Sure. So South Africa was founded by the Dutch. Uh, the country of South Africa, that is. There were, of course, several uh, tribes that were already on that land when the Dutch came in, and the Dutch, as we know, are also very infamous for their involvement in the West African slave trade. Yeah. Uh, Their establishment of a colony there was no less ruthless. Uh, The indigenous people were oftentimes made slaves or worked as indentured servitude, while these new settlers came on in and, and occupied the land that they would have been living on. They essentially evicted them and said, well, yeah. if you want to eat, come work on our land, and then we'll, we'll give you food. Sure. And they were also, they did their best to try to strip the tribes of their tribal identity, too. They were forced to, to learn Afrikaans, which was this new this meshing new, of yeah. tribal languages in Dutch. Um, there was a lot of this almost... And a, English as well. And English as well, Because yeah. the British would eventually come on in and colonize it for, for Britain. Right. So you have this almost this assimilation... But it's not assimilation in a good way. Assimilation in almost like the Borg. <laughs> yeah, like from Star Trek. <laughs> exactly. They came on in and just you know swept like 
like a plague of locusts and just took over everywhere. And what happened was this very, very strict caste system was developed. Uh, because they didn't just bring slaves from Africa. There were slaves being brought from India. There were slaves being brought from China. There were slaves being brought throughout the world slave trade, mm-hmm. which was going on you know, in the 1700s and right. starting to die out towards the 1800s. We forget that Gandhi, a lot of his work toward equality took place in South Africa before he went to deal with what was going on in India. And this is no big surprise then that... You know, with this foundation of the country, the way it was founded, that apartheid would take over and become what it did. Mm-hmm. What I find most interesting is that it occurred in the years aftermath of the of the Second World War. And if you think about it, the irony behind it, where millions of people had lost their lives, whether they be soldiers, whether they have been minorities of Europe, like the Jews and gypsies, homosexuals who were murdered, whether it had been Russian countrymen and civilians who had been murdered in the millions, all in the name of fascism, which promotes racism. We overcame that. And what happened to South Africa? It seems like it was a rally movement behind everything that we had just tried to destroy, an attempt to retain what it was that we tried to eradicate. It was a slap in the face. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the rest of the Western world was so depleted after the Second World War that even the thought of taking up arms and doing anything to kind of curtail this was an afterthought. Nobody cared. Yeah, not only that, but I mean, South Africa was one of the more prominent of the third world countries. And I mean, we really need to define what third world means because we now assume third world has a very big connotation of a, of a poverty stricken country. Right. That's not at all what this is. No. The third world was the, the countries who decided to neither associate with the free world of America and Western Europe or communism of the Soviet Union. And South Africa was a major third world country. So was India at this point in time. Correct. And also kind of shocking, we didn't find out until the end of the Cold War, that South Africa was a nuclear power. They were, <sighs> they were secretly <laughs> holding nuclear weapons. I find For that what weird. reason? We have no idea. <laughs> Other than probably wanting to keep the Soviets at bay just in case the Americans couldn't. It's really scary when you think yeah. about it. It really was. So around this time now, uh, post-World War II, 1950 in South Africa, there were several acts of legislation that were put into place that really propelled this concept and idea of racial inequality so much further forward than it had been. Because leading up to this, there had been all these attempts to prevent blacks from working in white offices with in white businesses uh there had been the segregation of beaches and and park benches and all of this all of the things that you actually kind of found in america around that time when we were fighting against segregation they were now being set up and embraced in south africa and in 1950 really it had reached the point now where they could pass legislation like the population registration act and people would not you know violently oppose it essentially people were issued now papers and they had to carry them around on them. Which Identity is, cards. again, rings true of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. You know? Instead of painting or sewing a star onto them, now you had it in your, in your passport. And there were different classifications that went beyond just black and white, but also uh, of Indian origin or of Chinese origin. And so it was the next step into essentially forcefully relocating people. Uh, and we talk about concentration camps, Right, and we talk about ghettos, and we talk about forcing the Jews of Europe into these places. The same thing was going on in South Africa. They were taking people, organizing them based on certain tribal groups. Basically, it was like they're doing, making, recreating ghettos. Yeah, exactly. Larger ghettos, very poor, total slums. They had nothing to build their homes with but leftover materials. So they were living in shacks, and they were forcefully relocated into these parts of the country. And they were told, "You are no longer South African." Because you will have your own nation now. We are in the process of making all of these other areas countries. And therefore, we're going to revoke your citizenship. And with that goes any vestige of rights that you might have had left. Yeah. And all these different catch-22s that took place to get anything done. This is a very insightful book. The book is written by Mark Matabanya. It looks like the word Mathabane, but it's pronounced Matabanya. And it's called uh, Kaffir Boy. Kaffir, unfortunately, is a South African slur... Uh, It's equivalent to the American version of the N-word, unfortunately. But it basically tells about Mark's childhood in South Africa um, and the struggles that were going on. And this book illustrates in in major detail everything that we're talking about, you know, the relocation of these peoples, uh, the extreme poverty 
that they were going through. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the only people in South Africa who are not white, who are allowed to live in white cities, were those who are working. And, of course, they all had the lowest paying jobs. Uh, white South Africans were being paid 12 times the amount of black South Africans. Mm-hmm or of any other cultural group in South Africa at the time. And keep in mind also, kind of going back when we were talking about, you know, interracial marriage and what have you, that, that was, of course, outlawed in South Africa. Misogyny, as it's called. Mm-hmm. And to the next degree of that, when they were forcefully relocating people, they would split up interracial families. I cannot imagine someone coming into my home and telling me that my wife and children are being taken away from me. Simply because they are... Simply because they're not white. You know... I could never deal with that. And to know then that if I had protested that I would have been dragged out in the street and probably shot, it, it hits close to home for me. It's really just disturbing when you think that all of this was going on in a time when we as a country, when the United States, were so more forward-thinking. When we were fighting against this and we're trying to perfect ourselves and try to make ourselves better. It really it touches me and it affects me. And sure. To personalize it in any way, you know. I mean, I've never dealt with it, but my cousins are half Japanese. You know, my uncle married a Japanese woman. And to think that my cousins could have done that, the same thing could have happened to it, you know. And I've never seen them as anything else other than just, they're my cousins. Yeah. You know? I want to throw another interesting factoid out there. Between 1948 and 1973, over 10 million black South Africans were arrested on claims that their passes were not in order. That's 10 million people. It's insane. Yeah, and as you can imagine... After 20 years of all of this, people finally started to, to speak out. This, this is worse than what was going on in America. I mean, not the, it's really even say, fair to say that either one should be worse than the other, but this is pretty bad. This is very severe. There were finally starting to be more people who were vocal and outspoken against this, people who were willing to protest and wanted to emulate the protests that have been done in America. They wanted to protest peacefully, but the police weren't going to have it. And we see example after example of, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people being killed during protests, uh, just outright shot on the street. And, of course, the most famous person of South Africa to ever been jailed for his beliefs, for his cause, was Nelson Mandela, who was the head of the African National Congress, who was really one of the first organized groups of people to speak out against apartheid and to fight for South African rights for all people. And he was sentenced to jail for 27 years. You know, that is a huge part of someone's life. And just jailed without a second thought. But what ended up happening, though, is Mandela became this symbol for freedom that everyone started to strive towards. And it would still be difficult. There would still be so much more suffering for many years to come before anything would really blossom out of his imprisonment and out of the desire to be free. In 1976, the Swotu uprising, a riot that had been born out of the fact that people were being forced to learn Africanus. They had no choice. This is what they were going to be taught in school, and you had to accept it. And the riot that happened resulted in well over 500 people being killed. And this was something that now the world wouldn't be able to ignore any longer. And it was in the 1970s that the United Nations and other countries started finally getting it in their heads what was going on in South Africa. They couldn't avoid it anymore. You know, sure, oh yeah, they had their diamonds. But, you know, how many of those diamonds came from the deaths of black South Africans? We hear about this, the, the, the blood, blood diamonds. diamonds. Well, it's not just South Africa. It's all over Africa. It is. But South Africa is what really kind of coined the phrase. And, and it was a time when, if you were a mine worker in South Africa and you were black, the, you had the most dangerous jobs possible. And you were paid pennies compared to anyone else. Another great movie, Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond, yeah. Exactly. Another great tie-in. I believe Leonardo DiCaprio plays a South African who is in, was it um, Zimbabwe, I believe? I don't remember. It's, it's, it's been a few years since I've seen the movie. Yeah, it's either Zimbabwe or Nigeria. I can't remember. It might have been Nigeria now that I'm thinking about it, but I, I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. And dealing with the same situation, though this is dealing with an escaped worker who is basically... A slave. A slave, yeah. Yeah. And finally, though, in the 1980s, the rest of the world finally took notice and started boycotts and bans on imports uh, from South Africa. And it had a huge economic effect. And it would be very much resisted for as long as possible, well into the early 1990s. But finally, the South African president 
uh, W.F. de Clark repealed the rest of all of the apartheid laws and essentially called for a whole new constitution. I mean, that's how severe the boycotts went on, that for a good decade, South Africa had to let its economy fall apart first before it was willing to cave into international pressure and treat human beings like human beings. And that's very sad. But what was born out of that was a new South Africa. And with this new constitution came multiracial, multi-party government and the election of a president that represented the vast majority of the people. Now that everyone in South Africa could vote, they could vote for whoever they wanted. 80% of South Africa's population during apartheid had no right to vote because they were not white. 80%. And so it's no wow. surprise then, in 1994, that now freed from prison, this icon of South Africa's civil rights movement, Nelson Mandela, uh, would be given an opportunity to run for office. And he did so and very of course, happily. he became president. <laughs> and he yeah. became president. And he became recognized around the world as a huge figure in the civil rights movement, not just for the time that he spent protesting apartheid and in prison, but now for a progressive president of an African nation. And, you know, it really is a really touching end to a lot of that racism that was going on, but it is still something that South Africa struggles with even to this day. The civil rights movement, as you very accurately said earlier, is not over yet. It is evolved, and it has changed, and we have made huge, huge strides around the world, but it is still very much something that's going on. And there are many other groups now that are finding representation, you know, like the, the lesbian and gay community of, of the United States and around the world, uh, who are now fighting in very much their own civil rights movement. And again, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But really quick, let's talk about... Uh, oh, District 9, you're going to say? I okay. want to talk about District 9. Okay, please, thank God. Okay, cool. <laughs> because District 9, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, I'm, you know, I won't drop too many big spoilers or anything, but it's essentially a science fiction film that's set in South Africa, uh, upon the arrival of a spaceship that kind of comes out of nowhere and deposits these aliens. They essentially are in a broken spaceship. Yeah, and they're called prawns because they, they have these crustacean-like yeah. bodies. In that case, a, a slur against them. You call them a prawn, yeah. And they were like, okay, what do we do with all these aliens? Um, hmm, what's worked in the past? Oh, yeah, ghettos. And so it's a great commentary because Neil Blomkamp, the director, uh, who had made these actually as short films... Uh, in the past, uses this as a, as a metaphor for a modern apartheid. Yeah. And for the most part, you see white and black South Africans being represented as equals. The prawns are, and I hate to say, because there's no real name for what they really are. What yeah, their they species don't, they don't call themselves, yeah. But the aliens in the yeah, movie. Are treated exactly, or if not worse, yeah. than African, than black Africans were. They're during, beaten and they're killed and they're, they're you know, grouped together. Yeah, they live in ghettos. And the protagonist of the movie starts out as an antagonist. He starts out as the bad guy, as a part works of the, for the government. Yeah. yeah, he works for the government, and he works within the organization that goes into these ghettos and essentially harasses people until he ends up becoming infected with some sort of genetically engineered virus or something to that effect that changes his genetic code into that of the aliens. And he slowly begins to transform, and as he does, he realizes that he is on the other side of the fence now, that he's being hunted and he's being treated like the aliens are. And he makes a connection with them, and he realizes now that he is becoming more like them, that they were actually just like us to begin with. They looked very different, but they had a social stratification and culture that was not all that different from ours. They had yeah. children, they cared for them, they could have assimilated and assumed jobs, you know, here they are, this advanced species, they could have done all sorts right, of stuff. Right, Tremendous story. So well done. Also very simple, too. I mean, yes, it's very complex because you have this sci-fi epic going on around you. Yeah. But Bob Andrews is just trying to get back to his wife. Yeah. Too. And uh, and also, the opposite side, Christopher, the, the main character of the alien species, is a man who's just trying to write by his son, too. Exactly. You know? Uh, I will shout out a warning for those of you who haven't seen it. It is pretty gruesome. It's pretty violent, yeah. Um, and it's very... You know, it, they don't, they don't, <laughs> it's not like they cut away and then a person explodes. Now, the person blows up and there's all little bits and pieces of them and it's pretty gross. But it's definitely worth watching though, because it is such an yeah. interesting take on it all. And, and I know we, there's a whole podcast that's separate for film, but brilliant art design. Whoever did the animation for these species of creatures gets every nuance of emotion. 
yeah. into these creatures' faces. And these are creatures who don't have very human faces at all. Yeah. You know? The fact that they can communicate that it's just, it was so well done. Yeah, it's and, pretty cool. And we've talked about all these different movies talk on these topics, but intolerance is a very important topic. And we can see why it inspires these stories to be told over and over again or retold, you know? Yeah. Well, another movie out there, Rabbit Proof Fence, is a very touching tale of a, of a young girl and her brother who attempt to return home in Australia after being removed from their families. And while it is purely fictional in the sense that the characters are fictional, the actual events that were taking place at that time in the country are very real. And the Australians know this as the Stolten Generation, is what they're referred to oftentimes. When the British founded Botany Bay in Australia, there were already people living in Australia, and they had for many, many years. In fact, the Aboriginal people of Australia are considered to have been some of the very first to move out of Africa and then colonize other parts of the world. We're talking anywhere from 150,000 to probably about 65,000 years ago. We know that these people ended up in the islands just north of Australia, uh, along Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia, and through a process known as island hopping, would sail on rafts and small boats, small groups at a time, across from island to island, and eventually make it to the mainland of Australia, where they would thrive as a, as a population. There were hundreds of thousands of people living in Australia by the time that the, the British got there. And for a while, there was a real resistance to having the Aboriginal people integrate into Australian society. And many of the Aboriginals didn't want to. They were perfectly happy to live the lives that they had been living for thousands of years, and were very true to their customs and traditions, enjoyed their lives, and didn't feel like they needed it. But the perception of these colonists were, because they, they didn't have the technology that the British colonists had at the time, that they were uneducated, and as such they needed to be educated. This is cited as one of the many reasons that children were taken from their families, from their parents, starting in and around the 1850s is really when a lot of this began, and kind of gained more um, acceptance and, and more uh, motion behind it in the in the 19 teens and we have all sorts of different estimates as to how many people were actually taken uh, some suggestions are as high as a hundred thousand children were removed from their families and and taken to these relocation centers where they would be educated up to the age of 18 and then attempted to be integrated into Australian society. What ended up happening was that many of these children who were stripped away from their parents, some of them babies. You know, there were laws that were passed essentially saying that as Aboriginals have children, the their laws or their rights as parents were gone, and that the hospital would assume custody of their child and then hand the child over to the government. I mean, that's how severe it got at one point. And you find then these kids were taken, taught English, kept in these schools, and in there, the conditions were not perfect by any means. Uh, there were many missionary groups that were involved with this that attempted to at least have sanitary and healthy conditions that the children lived in, but it, it still wasn't a justification, in my opinion. And there have been many of these kids who lived in those camps who reported sexual abuse on a very regular basis. So it was awful. And if you were of a mixed descent, if one of your parents was Aboriginal and the other was, you know, a, a white Australian, you were almost always, 100% at this time, taken away from your parents. Ah. <sighs> I mean, there, there's there's more that can be said about it because, I mean, it's a big topic in and of itself. We don't have a whole lot of time to keep going on on the show right now, but I encourage those of you who want to kind of see this from the perspective of a child who would have been removed from their family to watch that movie, Rabbit Proof Fence. It's extremely powerful, and it really is an amazing, amazing story. And, of course, Australia today has made so many changes and has moved to abolish the inequality that existed at that time. And it's a very, very progressive country uh, and is moving forward and forward more and more all the time and guaranteeing equality for all the peoples of Australia. So I don't want to make it sound like Australia is not a good place today. It is. It certainly is. But just like America, it had to struggle with its demons as well. We encourage you guys to explore other civil rights movements that take place. And yeah. it's... We didn't, even talk, we didn't even talk about uh, Ireland. We didn't talk about India. We didn't talk about... How about Egypt... Or Egypt. Egypt was another good example of modern civil disobedience. Or the then Czechoslovakia, another country in turmoil in 1968. Right. Uh, there were all sorts of civil rights movements, students' movements going on. And a Spain. Post right. Oh, and Spain and the fall of Franco. Uh, I mean, there is so much. I'm sure we'll approach this in another episode. And we should. We should have a part two to this at some point. But in the meantime, listeners, 
as we always say, don't take our word for it. Go out there, perhaps on this subject more than others. Really take this one to heart and learn about a civil rights movement that you didn't already know about. If there was anything that we mentioned today that was surprising to you or that you felt like, oh, I didn't know, go do a little bit more research because this is a subject that is important not just to us here in America, but to every single human being on this planet. And we hope that with this Martin Luther King Day that you have, you take a second to reflect on your upbringing and on those around you, those friends, those loved ones you may have who 50 years ago may not have been treated as well. Yeah. You know, or if you trace yourself back, you know, I'm of Irish heritage. I know 100 years ago, my family would have been treated with a lot of the same animosity, a lot of the same prejudice, unfortunately, that the African-American community would have had because of me just being Catholic or because of us being foreigner, unfortunately. Yeah. So um, it's a very important lesson to remember all forms of intolerance, not just racial intolerance. Of course. And you know what, people? It's a simple message. Be nice to each other. Don't be a dick. <laughs> it's true. It is. And, of course, if you'd like to learn more about this, we will give you a website we went to about the American Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, really nice, very comprehensive timeline. It's very much bullet points, obviously, so there's a lot more behind each of the subjects and topics that are listed on there. Uh, so, of course, you're going to want to go into a lot more more detail and research on your own. But we'll post that up on the Facebook page. We'll put that on Twitter, uh, on our website, of course. So we'll, we'll give you all sorts of different ways to, to hear about right. it. And speaking of which, if you haven't had a chance to check out our new version of Dronomy.com, do it. Please do so. You can get all of our social media connections there. You can also follow me on Twitter at Brian Moriarty. And you can follow me at The Brickmont. And with that, guys, we hope you have a wonderful week. Yeah, Brian, you know, this has been a really enlightening conversation. I'm glad we had it. And uh, you have a good one. You too, sir. Bye.